Well, this morning we're going to get into the Word, and I'm going to go ahead and go over there. Uh, we're going to look in the book of Matthew, and we're going to go to Matthew 5 and verse 38, and we're going to talk about how uh, today that we love, and this is going to be one you're really going to like, uh, how we love our enemies. See, I knew it would just go silent. Um, we, we just can hardly, we, we just been waiting, Pastor Bill. We can hardly wait for you to teach on this one. How to love our enemies. Oh, why did you bring that one up, Pastor Bill? I thought we were doing just fine, and now you ruined the whole series. And how many of you know the Bible does teach that we're to love our enemies? So there's really three categories I want to talk about concerning the love of God. Now, we're not talking about natural love. We're not talking about, you know, the uh, phileo love or, uh, you know, the type that's brotherly love. We're not talking about storge or family love. Uh, and we're not talking about eros, which is romantic love. We're talking about agape love. And we all remember those differences that they're, they're not the same. There's a big difference. One is a type of love uh, for, uh, you know, your, your spouse, eros. And the other one, storge, is for your family, and then phileo is like for your, your brother, your fellow, you know, maybe football player, or you're just some pals, companions, comrades. And so there, there are different types of love. And, and God wants us to understand how to walk in those. And so today, just as a reminder, I'm just going to read one more time, and I think it wouldn't have hurt if we read it every single time, but we didn't. But I'm going to read the definition of love one more time in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. And let's think here why, why that Jesus commits a huge portion of a chapter in several of the Gospels about loving your enemies. And that's what we're going to talk about first is loving our enemies. And if, see if there's any place in here where in this definition of the agape kind of love, it, that if it could apply to loving your enemies, and you'll find, yes, it does. Love endures with patience and serenity. Love is kind and thoughtful and is not jealous or envious. Love does not brag. It is not proud or arrogant. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not provoked nor overly sensitive and easily angered. Now, I'm just going to say something. I feel the Holy Spirit saying, you know, don't be so sensitive. A lot of times we're overly sensitive. How many have ever felt oversensitive? Like, there's just some days where everything offends me. How many of you feel like, you know, some days you feel like saying that song, well, how come everybody's always picking on me? I'm going to call Patty, and we're going to have a pity party. And so, you know, there just sometimes you, you, you just you can't be so sensitive. And that's part of walking in love is don't be sensitive. Let it run off your back like water off a duck. Amen? And then, nor easily sensitive and easily angered. It does not take into account wrongs endured. Oh, that could be right there. It doesn't take into account wrongs endured. Could that maybe have something to do with an enemy? That sounds like that applies towards possible enemies. It does not rejoice in injustice. Someone has brought you into a place of injustice. That sounds like you're dealing with an enemy. But rejoices with truth. When right and truth prevail, love bears all things, regardless of what comes, believes all things. Maybe even when somebody's gossiping, there's an enemy. And looking for the best in each other. Well, sometimes you look at it and you can't see anything good about your enemy. Hopes all things, remaining steadfast during difficult times. How many of you know enemies can bring difficult times to you? Endures all things without weakening. Love never fails. It never fades nor ends. Wow. So the way that we love, ultimately, 
is the way that Jesus did. You know, Jesus has a blanket statement for love. And we go over there into John 3.16. How many of you know John 3.16? For God so what? Loved the world. That he gave his only begotten son, that whoever should believe in him, should not perish, but have everlasting life. God so agaped so that we might have zoe life. He agaped us so we'd have zoe life. The God kind of love so we'd have the God kind of life. Can I get an amen? So the God kind of love creates the God kind of life. And so we have to, at that point, we have to come with this conclusion that the greatest love that we can bring to somebody isn't what we can humanly provide for them. We can feed them every day. Uh, We can give them money every week. We can do all kinds of things to be nice and gentle and uplifting and and help them emotionally. And and we can even pray for their hospital bill. We can even lay hands and get them healed. and, And we can do everything that we can for them physically. But ultimately, the greatest thing we can do for them is spiritually bring them to salvation. For God so loved the world. In other words, this love that was demonstrated that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You could say salvation. So the greatest love that was given, which is the laying down of a life, was for the express purpose to bring salvation. Our greatest act of love is to try to bring our enemies to salvation. Our greatest act of love is to try to bring the lost people to salvation. Not provide a nice existence, not just build a house, and that's great if we build them a house. That's great if we give them some money and we feed them. That's great if we do all those things, and we should make provision, and that's part of loving the lost. But our greatest, our greatest objective in loving our enemies and loving the lost, people that we might not care about, people that we might just forget about, people that we may have no concern about if we're just selfish and we think that it's all about us, uh, that, that it, the greatest thing we can do for them is to bring them to eternal life and salvation, and doing what's right to make that happen in their lives. So I believe that there's three ways uh, to bring each of these three categories closer to salvation. Now, I'm going I'm to just look, and, and, and it starts out, by there's kindness, and there's rebuke, and there's providing for them. And those are three basic things, but we're going to break it down, and we're going to look, number one, and how God commands us to love our enemies. Turn with me to Matthew, the fifth chapter, verses 38 through 48. And this is the, relieving, the revealing and demonstrating the love of God to our enemies. Now, how could we do that? How might we reveal God's love to our enemies? So we're going to begin there in Matthew 5, 38 through 48. And I'm just going to read it through first, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to break it down. You have heard... Uh, that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. How many of you know that was actually a law of restraint? Somebody might knock, knock your tooth out, and then to restrain them, you can't go back and, and literally you know, knock 10 of their teeth out. It's to restrain them to only what was done. And in, the, in that law, it was actually a law of restraint, not a law of revenge. But I say unto you, that ye resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him two miles. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that hath would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. Ye have heard that it hath been said, 
thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your neighbor and bless them that curse you and do good to them that hate you and pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the children of your Father, which is in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, sending rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love them which love you, what reward have you? Wow, look at that. There's a reward when you love those who don't love you. There's no reward if you just love people that love you. What reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? There was even the lost people, you know, they show love towards each other. And if you salute your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the publicans do so? Be therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. So we need to be like our Father in heaven. And I look at that, and some people say, yeah, but turning the other cheek, Pastor Bill, what about self-defense? What about that? That always comes up. How many of you know that always comes up when it talks about turning the other cheek? And the secular media, whenever you know, it, something happens, like in a church, and if somebody tries to defend, then this whole issue. Of t- I, let me just give you a quick uh, side advertisement here on what that really means. Let's, let's, as a matter of fact, we'll just, we'll just read it. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, I'm, I'm going to ask uh, Daryl to come up here. I was going to ask Julie, but, but I, I'm going to have, have Daryl come up here. Now, Daryl, point to your right cheek. See, now, everybody knows that in the culture, the, the Bible, how many of you know the Bible always gives you the rule, not the exception? So the rule would be someone who is right-handed. So the rule, and, and, and I know this because I read this in commentaries, not because I just figured it out myself, but when I, when I looked at it, it made total sense. To smite someone on the right cheek, how do I do that? I have to do this. It's a backhanded strike. Because that's Daryl's right cheek. Notice how it specifically says right cheek. Did you all see that in the verse? Raise your hand if you saw it in the verse. It says right cheek. There's a reason why it says right cheek. Because why would it say that? Why wouldn't it just say if somebody smites you, turn the other cheek? No, it says if someone smites you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek. Well, it's understood in Jewish culture that if you want to insult somebody, you strike them like this. It's also known in the Jewish culture, if you not want to insult, but you want to assault someone, you strike them like this on their left cheek. Okay, thank you. (laughs) But it just sure helps to have a picture of it, right? That's that's hard to understand if you're thinking right, left, the backside, the front side, you get all confused. But if you just see it, how many of you know it makes perfect sense? So when there is an insultive strike, we turn the other cheek. Jesus is talking about insultive actions towards us. The Bible tells us very clearly in the Old Testament that we do have a right to protect our lives from, a, from an assault. Can I get an amen? amen? Amen. We need to rightly divide the word of truth. And, and so Jesus told his own disciples to go buy a sword because they were going to be in danger. How many remember when Jesus told the disciples to buy a sword? And then what did Peter cut the high priest's ear off with? Oh, a sword. I'm sorry. 
And so we have to rightly divide, take all the scriptures and find out what they all really mean in their proper context. Somebody say amen. And so now, we're, so we're not talking about letting somebody beat you to death. Well, you know, get up and run if somebody's trying to do that. Don't get up and say, hit me again. That's called stupidity. But Jesus doesn't teach stupidity. He's teaching an act of love here. And if any man will, you know, sue ye, or if any man takes your cloak, if anyone asks for something, always go above and beyond. And I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them that despitefully use and persecute you. It is so important that we do that. Because so uh, that we'll have number, verse 48, and love them which love you, that your reward, so, because what reward have ye do if, if you just do what the public is doing? In other words, there, everybody say, there's a reward for loving our enemies. Amen. There's a reward. And so we, we need to understand that. And we love them, and we, and we go the extra mile. And then in verse 40 is the key thing. Be therefore perfect, even as your Father which in heaven is perfect. How would we bless our enemies? Let's, let, let's look at another scripture because I immediately think of Romans chapter 12. Go to Romans chapter 12. Because Paul talks about this and Paul goes into great detail also on this issue in the book of Romans. Romans 12 verses 17 through 21. And it says, Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Now, if you can't control yourself, you know, if you can't live peaceably, if, if there's somebody that provokes you so much that you're afraid you're going to lose it, exit that situation. You're better off getting out of that situation if your love walk is not strong enough. I said, you're better off exiting that situation if your love walk is not strong enough. Because if you blow up and have a fist fight or some type of altercation, then your testimony is ruined. Your testimony is not ruined if you walk away and get out of there. It's just postponed. But, you're, but if you, it says, live with it peaceably with all men as much as lies within you. In other words, that varies differently with different people. How many of you know some people have a stronger love walk? And a stronger ability to withstand abuse than others. Amen. And so uh, if you don't have a strong ability to withstand abuse, you, you may need to look for a different job. You may need to get out of that situation. You may need to do something to exit that situation because you could lose your testimony very easily. And so that's important. And it goes on, it says, And dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. Did you know if you avenge, then God won't avenge? You know, the best thing you can do is be real nice to him and return good for evil, and it says it'll, it'll heap hot, hot coals on their head. And then you're saying, yeah, but it's still not right because, you know, they did me harm, and they're getting by. No, 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 no. God does not say he's going to let them get by with it. And for some of you who, who, who tend towards vengeance, you know, we need to not be vengeful, but we do need to know that God will avenge us. You need to get that vengeful thing out of your, out of your flesh, out of your, out of your person. You need to get that out of you. Only God knows perfect justice. Somebody say amen. amen. Only God knows why they're doing it. Only God can understand how much justice needs to be meted out to that person to be punished. 
Now look what it says. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourself. You're not qualified to do that. You don't know everything about that person and what's wrong with them and why they're acting the way they are. Dear beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. You don't have to worry about repaying evil for evil. Somebody say amen. You just need to be concerned about being a good, a, a good uh, testimony. And having a good testimony, being a good witness, that's what I'm trying to say. You just need to be concerned about being a good witness. Now, look at this. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. Now we're going right back to exactly what Jesus was saying. Give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome with evil. In other words, don't let the devil win. Don't let the devil win through people. Be not overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Let God win through you. See, when, if you overcome evil with evil, then the devil has triumphed, hasn't he? Well, and, and if evil overcomes good, then the devil just won. But overcome, I mean, I said that backwards. But if we overcome evil with good, then God wins the situation. So we want to be doing that thing that causes goodness to triumph over evil. And when I see that, I see that uh, it's really important that we do that because they'll never know the way. They'll think that if you don't act in a, in a godly manner, they'll, they'll just think, well, see, this Christian thing isn't true. See, I, if you provoke them enough, they really don't walk in love. How I many of there's people just like to see that too? There's people just love to test you on your love walk. We'll pass the test. Pass the test, somebody. You know, one person, uh, and, and, you know, because be like your father. Represent your father who's in heaven. Jesus just said, and be as your father who's in heaven. In other words, overcome evil with good and as your father in heaven. Let, let me just read that verse back there in Matthew one more time. I'm just going to read it quickly. And we're going to see that because this is, this is the key verse. This is the verse that brings it all together. And it says, And be therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Because his love is perfect. His love is filled with grace. His love is filled with mercy. And most of all, Jesus' love had to love his enemies. And if we don't love our enemies, we're hypocrites because you know what? The Bible says we were all God's enemies at one time. Turn in your Bibles to Romans 5 and chapter 10. I mean, chapter 5 and verse 10. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. You're going to have to have a death to yourself to do this. Somebody say amen. You're going to have to crucify your flesh to do this. You're not going to be able to do this out of your ego, pride, and self-importance. You're going to have to do this out of humility and selflessness and the cross. For if when we were enemies, we were all God's enemy. We've all been enemies of God. If you're friends with the world, the Bible says you're an enemy of God. All you got to do is be a little friendly with the world and and you're acting like an enemy towards God. That's what the Bible says in James. <clears throat> For if when we were 
enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And so by our death to ourself and, and, and living uh, rightly before uh, the lost and the enemies in our lives, that's how we bring them to Christ. That's how we show the same love who, uh, that Jesus showed. How many of you know Jesus hung on the cross and had to say, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. The people that were beating him, putting spears through his side, pounding nail-sized thorns into his head, pounding nails through his hands and feet, mocking him and jeering him and plucking out the hair on his face. And he was saying, Lord, forgive them. They know not what they do. How many of you know that's loving your enemies? And see, Jesus calls us to that same thing. That's hard. And, 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 if, you, and if you get to the point where you think you're going to retaliate, exit, get out of that situation. You know, even back in the Old Testament, we know that Joseph had to flee from fornication. You know, sometimes with sin, if you aren't up to the task, it says God always makes a way of escape. How many of you know that? And if you need to escape, just escape. But don't retaliate. You're better escaping than... Re- You're better saying, you know, you know, somebody tries to get you in a fight, just saying, you know what, I'm not going to do this. I'm sorry you want to fight, but I'm, I'm not going to do that, and just walk away. You're better off not uh, retaliating and coming against your enemy. And, and the Bible says that is what will bring conviction to our enemies. I remember this one guy, and uh, it was a guy in junior college, and I was going there, and and he wasn't my enemy, but, but we went from being, being very unfriendly to being very, very close friends. And his name is Terry Morrison. He was about 270 pounds, benched about 450 pounds. I saw him at the gym, and I'll tell you what, he was about the most unfriendly guy I ever met. And I would see him at the gym, and when I was in junior college in Marshalltown, Iowa, when I was uh, you know, getting ready to go off to ORU, it's before I went to ORU, and I was in junior college, and I was going to Marshalltown Community College. And I used to work at a gym, and in this gym, this great big huge guy, Terry Morrison, would show up, and, I, and he also was going to the junior college that I was going to. When I saw him at the gym, he just scowled. And when I saw him at the college, he just scowled. He never talked to anybody, and he acted like, if you looked at him, he looked like he was mad at you, and you didn't want him to be mad at you. He was huge. He was a, a, a great big bodybuilder, uh, powerlifter type of guy. And he, and, he, and he just, it's like everybody on campus was afraid of him, and most of the guys at the gym were afraid of him. And the Lord told me, you know, just befriend him. I'm thinking, right. And I'm thinking, how am I going to befriend him? He won't even talk to anybody. And I kept thinking, how am I going to befriend this guy? And now, he wasn't my enemy, but he sure wasn't my friend. He acted like an enemy to everybody. And so I just said, hey, how about, you know, I spot you, and he says, I suppose, and, and then, you know, at the gym where you spot, somebody's using heavy weight, and you want to make sure that they don't drop it on them, and so I started spotting him, then I started talking to him, then I started asking him about school, and I was amazed how suddenly he went from being really almost adversarial in his attitude to becoming very friendly, like finally somebody's reached out to me. I got to know this guy. He became one of my closest friends, and I found out that he'd been raised in the foster home system, and he'd been in 26 different foster homes, more than any young person has ever been in the state of Iowa at that time. He'd been molested and raped multiple times. He'd been beaten and abused. He'd been left hungry and abandoned. He'd had about every bad thing that you could have done to you, this guy had done to him. 
Now, see, I didn't know that. Nobody else on campus knew that. He didn't confide in me those things until long after we became friends. He got born again and filled with the Holy Spirit. He went on and won the National Police Olympics in powerlifting. And he went on with a great testimony and shared the gospel with lots of people. But let me tell you something. There's something about the person that you think your enemy could become your best friend. The person that wants to challenge you most may be the person that wants to have what you have to tell him. Maybe that's what he really desires more than anything is for you to love him and tell him the truth. Maybe that's why he's challenging you so much. So we need to learn how to love our enemies because many times the devil has made him an enemy because that's the very person you're supposed to be witnessing to. Somebody say amen. Let's go on to the next people. Now we're going to also talk about the proud and the humble, how that we're called to love them and minister to them. Turn with me to John, the eighth chapter, and we're going to look at some things uh, in that chapter about how Jesus has two different modes and two different ways of dealing with fornicators and Pharisees. Everybody say fornicators and Pharisees, and you don't deal with them the same way. There's two different modes of dealing with people, and here we see juxtaposed one against the other, this very incredible uh, delineation and distinction uh, and differentiation between two different types of people and how Jesus ministered to them as lost people. John chapter 8, we're going to begin reading in verse 1, and we're going to go down to verse 11. And Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him and sat down, and he taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. Well, we'll call, you know, adultery is a form of fornication, so we'll call her the fornicator. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery. In the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? And this they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. He just ignored them. Started writing on the ground. How many know when you go quiet, that'll get people's attention more than if you try to fight back? And it immediately got their attention. They immediately started watching what he was writing. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and he said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast the stone at her. And again he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. Boy, I'd like to know what was being written on that ground. I think some of those old Pharisees, they probably had some uh, skeletons in their closet. Now, look what it says. And, <laughs> and again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. Now, here, here's a key word, key word in verse 9. And they which heard it being convicted by their own conscience. We're not here to condemn people, but we are potentially to be used by God to bring conviction to people by their own conscience, not yours. Somebody say Amen. By their own conscience, convicted. Conviction is a powerful thing. Jesus brought conviction to these Pharisees. Wow. So here, here we go. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one. Because at the eldest, even unto the last, and Jesus was left alone. 
and the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus had lifted up himself, he saw none but the woman. And he said unto her, Woman, where are thy accusers? See, there's conviction and there's accusation. And it says, Where are thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? And then there's condemnation. There's a difference between conviction and condemnation. Can I get an amen? Conviction makes you realize you've done wrong. Condemnation leaves you without hope and says you can never get it right. Then she said, no man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. So Jesus brought compassion through correction. We've got Pharisees. Jesus comes on pretty strong with them, shows them some things that must have been pretty strong. He brought conviction to the Pharisees, and he brought compassion to the fornicator. Did you know that we don't deal with everybody exactly the same way? Turn with me to the book of Jude. I want you to read something, look at something about the love walk. The love walk has an understanding that not everybody's the same. And when we deal with the lost, we need to understand that we can't just deal with everyone the same way. Now, I'm going to go to Jude chapter 1. There's only one chapter in Jude. And I'm going to go to verse 21. And 21 says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Everybody say, the love of God. This is agape. Keep yourselves in agape, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And we're looking for the mercy unto eternal life. We're looking for the grace of God for people to be saved or have eternal life. Can I get an amen? Amen. And so how does that work? Verse 22 and 23 tells you. And some having compassion make a difference. Jesus showed compassion to the woman, the fornicator, didn't he? And others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. Some by compassion and some by fear. Well, something brought conviction on them. The fear of God brings conviction, the Bible tells us. Something caused them to fear God that they would get up and walk away out of that situation. See, there is a type of conviction that comes that is based in fear and conviction. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of God is to hate evil and every evil work, it says in Psalms. The fear of the Lord is what causes us to repent in one place, it says. And so fear for the Pharisee or, I mean, excuse me, conviction for the Pharisee and compassion for the fornicator. And, you know, we can look through the Bible. This isn't a one-time instance. There's a time when God will call you to be very compassionate on a very sinful person because God knows that that person doesn't need conviction. That, that person may need loving correction. You know, Jesus did correct her. He says, go and sin no more. There's a correction to it, but, but it's a compassion. And then there are some very proud people that you may need to show them how sinful they are through your righteous living, but also by just showing them what the Word of God says. Don't ever try to, to convict somebody yourself. How many of you know that doesn't work? See, turn with me to Romans 2 and 4, and it talks about repent, the goodness of God brings repentance in some. Then we'll find in a place in Corinthians where it sounds like it's contradictory, but it's not. It's complementary, not contradictory. So we look over there in Romans 2 and verse 4. Now we're talking about 
how do we love the lost? We're talking about winning souls, really, because loving the lost is really winning them and getting them saved. The most loving thing you can do to a lost person is get them saved. Somebody say amen. Romans 2, 4 says this, Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and the forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth to repentance. That woman who was caught in adultery, that fornicator, that lady, what brought repentance to her was compassion or knowing, and Jesus demonstrates, the goodness of God led her to repentance that day. See, she probably thought God was like those Pharisees, like those religious people. How many of you know you wouldn't think God was very nice if you just went by those religious people? But Jesus shows up, and he shows her the goodness of God. And he ministers to her and brings her to repentance through understanding God's goodness. There's people that you work with every day that all they need to get them over the hump to get them saved is they need to know about the goodness of God. There's people that you're working with that they're crushed. They're defeated. They don't have any sense of hope or any future in their lives. And they feel like this world is rotten. My life is rotten. This job here is rotten. I don't like anything about my life. And I don't know why, why I'm here or what my purpose for, for my existence is. And they need to know about the goodness of God. They need to know that God has a plan for them. God knows the plans that he has for them of good and not for evil. To give them a hope and an expected end. Somebody say amen. To prosper them and not to harm them. They need to know about the goodness of God. There's people like that. And that's compassion. Now turn with me to 2 Corinthians 7, 8. 2 Corinthians. Here's another way that we deal. And there's another way that we love the lost. And you, you say, well, this way doesn't seem like love. And, you know, but, you know, when Jesus wrote down on that ground, whatever it was that those Pharisees were doing that convicted them, how many of you know that was the love of God? Boy, I didn't get a lot of response on that. But that was the love of God doing that. How many of you know if we're... If we're driving like a crazy person towards a cliff, we need somebody to slap us upside the head and get us turned around. That's an act of love. That's an act of love because we're going to, you know, in pride, how I many know pride comes before a fall and it says, you know, if you're in pride, you're going to fall into a pit. Pride comes before a fall. If you're running around in pride and error, you need somebody to slap you with some conviction, not, not physically slap them. Don't go out of here and slap somebody. Thank you. <laughs> 2 Corinthians 7, verses 8 through 10. Look what it says. It says, For though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent. Though I did repent, for I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it, excuse me, but, it, but it, for a season. Now I rejoice not that ye were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance. For ye were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. And there's two different types of sorrows, folk. The sorrow when you sin all your life and you come to the end of your life and your life's ruined, you're broke, you're, you're, your family's a mess and, and you're miserable and you hate yourself and you hate... That type of sorrow is different than somebody correcting you and saying, you know, the way you're living isn't right. And you realize, you know, that's right. 
I'm sorry for that. I wish I wouldn't have done that. See that? There's two different types of sorry. Some people never are sorry. How many many know people that never say they're sorry? I know people like that. They never say they're sorry because they don't have sorrow. But there's a sorrow that leads to repentance, the Bible says. And as we see here, that it leads to repentance, and, and the godly sorrow doesn't lead to repentance. So when Jesus wrote something, those men had sorrow. And they may not have repented all the way to becoming you know, saved, but at least they repented from their wicked attack on that woman that day. Somebody say amen. See, Jesus told them their sins, and conviction came. So we can see all through the Bible that uh, there, there is, you know, this conviction that comes on people. Number three, let's, let's look at the humble a little bit more. John 10, uh, you know, Jesus, by compassion, uh, did this. John 8, excuse me, verses 10 through 11. And he told this woman that, I don't condemn you. Where are all your condemners? He says, go and sin no more. He basically forgave her. God wants us to have opportunities like that. Now, one thing that we need to do for the lost and the humble is to provide and meet needs. How many of Jesus fed the 5,000? There is practical provision as part of loving the lost. How many of Jesus healed their sicknesses? That's, pra- that's a practical need. Jesus, when P- Peter couldn't pay his taxes, go down to the river fishing and there'll be a fish with a mouthful of gold that'll pay all your taxes. Jesus went down to the river, he threw in his line, he pulled out a fish, he opened up its mouth, had enough gold to pay his taxes. Wouldn't that be nice to be able to pay your taxes that way? Go on a fishing trip and come back with all your tax money. Gosh, why doesn't it work that way for me? But anyway, Jesus cares about our practical needs. We need to care about people's practical needs. But then how many of you know in John 2, verses 13 through 15, Jesus made a whip? Now that, I'll tell you, that will mess with your head. How many of you know it says Jesus braided? That's, that's what we call in the legal world premeditated. You don't accidentally make a whip on the, on the spur of the moment. Jesus braided a whip. Now we won't go there because we're almost out of time. Jesus braided a whip. And then he went and he drove them out of the temple, the money changers and those who were selling the doves and those who were exploiting and abusing the house of God. Wow. The same Jesus that healed people gave people a beating with a whip. So God has only loved part of the time, not all the time. No. God is love, 1 John 4, 8. How many know God is love? I mean, Jesus is God. Then if Jesus did it, it was love. So here we go again. There's that time where there's difference between the way you do with a Pharisee and a fornicator. There was a fierce, harsh side of rebuke and correction and fear to be put into people. And then there's other times where Jesus was very gentle It says, and Jesus saw the people and had compassion on them and saw them as sheep without a shepherd. And it says, and he even wept over Jerusalem because they did not recognize their day of visitation. Jesus had this very compassionate, very much, he wept when Lazarus died. Then he raised him from the dead. 
Jesus was very, very compassionate. But at the same time, Jesus could make a whip and beat people with a whip and run them out of, of the church house. Boy, I tell you what, if somebody did that today in a church, <laughs> I mean, there, there'd be trouble in River City. <laughs> it would not be good. But Jesus did that. And so, you know, you think about, wow, Jesus had some different things. And, you know, Jesus about, how many of you know Jesus rebuked, how many have ever read Matthew 23? He calls them whitewashed sepulchers. He says, you Pharisees, you're so arrogant. You make twofold uh, your little disciples that you got following you around. You make them twofold the child of hell. You, you, you shut up heaven so nobody can even go in. You've made it so nobody can go to heaven. And you make your followers twofold the child of hell. You're a bunch of snakes. You're a bunch of whitewashed sepulchers. You're a bunch of jerks who killed all the prophets. How many of you have read Matthew 23? Holy mackerel. You preach like that today, they'd put you in jail for pastor abuse, for sheep abuse, or congregation abuse. Yet Jesus did that. Did that work? Did that just run them? Well, Pastor Bill, I don't know that, that type of preaching. My gosh, uh, I don't know about that. That's that's pretty. Yeah. How many of you know Nicodemus showed up in the middle of the night? He said, "Lord, what must I do to be saved?" How many of you know Nicodemus when when they went to bury Jesus? Nicodemus paid for the grave. He was part. Of, he he partially paid for. The, he either paid for it or provided the grave and took care of Jesus after he had been crucified. Nicodemus could have been ran out of town and put on a cross himself by the Jews. How many of you know he took great risk? He must have been a real believer, otherwise he would have never done any such a thing. He must have really got saved that night when John 3, when Jesus said, you know, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. He must have been born again that night because he would never have thought about doing those things. There was way too much risk involved. And then compassion. How many of you know that compassion works it says over there when the two men and you can go over there and it's another scripture matthew 20 23 jesus moved with compassion on the two blind men and they got saved and it says and from then on they followed him so all through jesus ministry so how do we know colossians how do we know whether we operate in this strong conviction and it's the you know sorrow that leads to repentance or do we deal with the strong compassion and bringing them to the love of God and the goodness of God that brings them repentance we're going to finish right here in Colossians 4 everybody turn there we're going to just finish out the sermon Colossians very powerful portion Paul prayed this way Colossians 4 2 continue in prayer and watch with thanksgiving with all prayer also for us that we would, that God would open unto us a door of utterance. Did you know you're going to be praying for a door of utterance? This week I'm going to ask you to pray that a door of utterance open up and you can invite people to the Easter service. Pray that a door of utterance. Pray that an opportunity to get to speak to somebody. That's what he's talking about. With all prayer for us, that God would open to unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am in bonds, that I might make it manifest as I ought to speak. He's praying that he might make this utterance that comes forth manifest as it ought to be. Ought it to be the sorrow that leads to repentance? Or ought it to be 
knowing the goodness of God that'll lead to repentance. Which way do I go? God, I don't know. I don't know this person. You're going to have to give me some divine insight. So Paul prays that I might, when the doors of utterance open, that I might make it manifest without to speak, walking in wisdom towards them that are without, redeeming the time, that your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. Some men, the answer that they need is, wow, the conviction, not the compassion. The fear that Jude talks about, not the confession. Compassion. The sorrow that leads to repentance, not the goodness of God that leads to repentance. And we can know, just say this, we can know how we ought to answer every man. And Peter, it says, to always be ready, to give an answer for the reason, for the hope that dwells within you. Always be ready to give an answer. That's in Peter. You can turn there. We're not going to take the time. 1 Peter 3.15. Always be ready and know how to give an answer for the reason why you believe. See, be ready in season and out. Be praying that God opens. How many of you pray that God opens a door for your lives? We need to be looking at our workplaces, the place where we can go love people. We're talking about the love of God this morning. If you love people, you'll go to work, not... not trying to figure out how much money you're going to make that day, but you'll go to work looking for who you can influence to be born again that day. Go to work and see those people differently. See you're go, get it, going into all the world to preach the gospel. Some people go into all uh, their world to go make a living. Go into your world to preach the gospel. And some are going to come to sorrow, excuse me, to repentance through sorrow. Some are going to come to repentance through knowing the goodness of God. And you're the ones that are called to bring it to them because that's the love of God expressed. Let's stand up. Amen.